Cultural Capital special episode of the Class Ceiling podcast, I spoke to Pascal Mathias for a truly dynamic interview with our newly appointed University of Southampton Associate Vice President of Equality, Diversity, Inclusion and Social Justice and authentic beacon of hope for change. Pascal, welcome to the Class Ceiling podcast. Are you ready? Yes. So firstly, can you tell us about your education and career journey? So I studied at Manchester Metropolitan University back in 1995 and I changed courses actually. So in my second year I switched to studying business. I always wanted to play sport and heavily into basketball I was the chairman of the basketball society I kind of I had a big event in my life my father passed away in my first year so I thought actually I want to do something with meaning I kind of knew that I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player so I chose kind of film and cultural studies so really kind of probably my first foray into understanding culture so understanding british culture american culture specifically through the lens of film Mm -hmm. and really enjoyed it loved it but always had that kind of business side as well and then after that i went and did a postgraduate a master's in film productions so did you study film at mmu at postgrad No, so I came back down to Southampton and did a postgraduate in film, but I really wanted, and I did a lot of short courses at the Raindance Institute and then did my master's in production and loved it, absolutely loved it. It really, it allowed me to understand diverse cultures. So I was very into French New Wave, Italian Neo Realism, kitchen sink dramas from, from the UK in the 50s and 60s and from there my education path just took a left turn so because I started working in fashion so I kind of left them it's very difficult so 1999 maybe it was pre-digital and I used to shoot on film or 16 millimeter and it was before you know HD 1080 etc so everything had to be transferred it was slow very expensive I kind of think if I was working in film today it would have been easier and I would have continued but then I I moved to fashion I fell into fashion and started working for some top high street brands just designing I worked for Arcadia Group work for so when my first kind of contract working as a designer was working for Tottenham in Arcadia and then started working for New Look and then Williamson Dickies. So it was a really kind of good exploration of like my kind of outlook and again, looking at culture and, and people as well. So it's it a very varied background. I guess I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was much younger. Does that kind of t- 
tie in with things that people have done in your family previously? Were they higher education participants? Did they go to university? Did they work in creative industries? No, not at all. I think I'm the only, (laughs) my sister might disagree. So I'm one of two, I've got an older sister. She works for the NHS and she works in community and engagement, actually, which is a really interesting job that she's she's really good at. My mum was a midwife for 40 years and my dad was an engineer. I'm So I'm first generation that have been to university, my sister and myself. Uh-huh. My sister did work in journalism for a bit, but in terms of creativity, my parents always encouraged me to kind of look outside of my normal field of vision. So there was a lot of reading I was really into kind of reading and understanding other cultures and I came from a background with lots of kind of aunties and uncles and cousins where you're always kind of part of a of a big group so it was very interesting in people different types of uncles different types of aunties but no in terms of university academic side my dad was particularly very keen for me to take the kind of academic pathway I wasn't so keen actually when I was maybe 16 or 17, but then for actually at that time, yes, why not? And, you know, I've never really looked back. I really, I I enjoy academia. I think it holds so many opportunities for people, but can be quite difficult. And and do you think you learn a lot about different cultures from film? Because the genres you're talking about are, are quite varied. Yes. Yeah. Film saved me. When I, my, my dad died um, when I was 20, um, he was 59, died of cancer, and it it was a very difficult time in academia. I felt very isolated, very alone. And back in that time, I just had a TV. I had a, a black and white TV. So I actually, and we studied Hitchcock, and we studied films, you know, uh, Citizen Kane, but very obscure French films, Russian films. But particularly Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock films. So I'm a, a great lover of Hitchcock and mystery and understanding people's motivations, etc. But it was really interesting that film gave me the capacity to understand other people, other narratives. And, and Hitchcock was a kind of master, not just of mystery, but if you take something like psycho, understanding people's motivations, yeah. understanding understanding people's real inner psyche. So I yeah. love film. So I and it's back in the time where it was VHS video. So I essentially just watch every single black and white film possibly yeah. known, and and just I'd I'd watch about five or six films a day. I'd you know I'd watch Orson Welles, Hitchcock as well, Truffaut, Goddard but just loved film I was, and I still do, still do. And this ep- this episode is of the Clastillion podcast. Is, we're kind of really interested in the, in the idea of subcultural capital and that's exactly yeah. what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of through creativity, getting to know different perspectives. And I know yeah. that we had a, a conversation this week about going to raves and going out dancing mm. a lot in the 90s and kind mm. of getting that cultural experience and I think it's something that's really overlooked as we talk about issues of belonging and yes. understanding different viewpoints that mm. it's not really solely an academic and and kind of governmental issue 
it's something that lives inside us that kind of open-mindedness absolutely absolutely i agree with that i think the environment in which you occupy can really determine how you see and view the world i grew up i was born in southampton and grew up in a very small village north ballersley like only family that i knew there yeah very very isolated lots of fields and interestingly and now i've i've moved outside of winchester i live in mitchell Mitchell station and again very kind of isolated i kind of wonder why i like that kind of isolation but then i always gravitate to cities new york i I, so when i finished when i um finished my postgraduate no when i finished my undergraduate actually i went traveling um across america so i just backpacked with a friend and spent six months going to every day so i've always been fascinated by people and film has allowed me to to see people in a way which is very engaging i I don't see people as challenging i see them as an opportunity to understand the world i think that the, we can understand the world through people and with people. Yeah. And I think where you, you talk about social capital, it is, it's inherent, I think, and in, in, in that when you look at people, they reflect the environment that they are in. Yeah. So going to university in Manchester at, at that time, there's some that, stories. Yeah. It, was, it was fantastic. I mean, Absolutely. the subcultural capital that you can get from being in a northern metropolis police actually yeah. is phenomenal isn't it that you can't even get yeah. in London it's excellent to hear of a different perspective of a capital that is gained through non-traditional and kind of experiences mm. and that's what this podcast is all about really so yeah. you talked about feeling isolated in academia mm. and how important is enabling a sense of belonging for those who don't identify with the pr- predominant culture in higher yeah. education and are there pockets where this is being achieved do you think there's work to be done i think i think that the greater the amount of uh for the better term multiculturalism within academia the better it is and and not for those that identify with diverse characteristics but for everybody I think for everybody, everybody will learn in an environment which is much more diverse, which is much more inclusive. Speaking to my students, um, some of my students that come from big cities, there is this notion that they are somehow missing out on the opportunities, that kind of capital that we talk about, because of the lack of diversity that is within academia, within students and staff. Because I think the stories and the narratives are very different. And we have... I do a task within my class which just really kind of introduces the different kind of narratives that we have from students from overseas, not just from China, but from Southeast Asia, India, etc. But our European students as well, our English students, and look at the differences, but also the commonalities. And we talk about food, we talk about film, we talk about culture. I used to do a film night with my background in film, and we just Amazing. used to watch. Yeah. We used to watch all the films that I love really so we'd watch you know one car way films in the mood for love we'd watch you know films that they probably wouldn't come across again because i think yeah. film is a leveler as well it's very immediate and immediacy is really important for me so you can watch a film yeah and understand different people in different cultures and it sits outside of the curriculum it sits outside of that traditional method of learning you learn 
and it's and it's very rare now but we we learn um as a cohort together you see yeah. people just watching films now on their phones or just streaming on their computers but there's about something about coming together lots of different people hence why i still love the cinema and fashion and it it's, connection it's yeah, I can see together. that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. You're in this space now and obviously mm. um, an important um, presence in our institution. When we're asked about our background, mm. is there an assumption that we're no longer part of that now, that we're operating in, in this HE space? You know, sometimes I feel like people say to me when they ask about my background, who did you used to be? <laughs> you know? Right, right. Interesting question. I still feel like the 10-year-old Pascal. I like to think, obviously, we grow and we change, but I'd like to think my principles are, are still the same. They haven't changed. I think what has changed is that I'm more confident of being my authentic self. And I think I'm more confident in saying, I mean, this is a podcast, you can't see me, but I wear beanies. I'm very into sneaker culture. I'm very into streetwear. I have my own style of fashion I, and I, I won't change. I won't have to modify or codify myself. And I have before. I used to be the academic that had to kind of fit in. And yeah. maybe I felt very uncomfortable and isolated doing that. So I think that when we when we look at kind of that question, you know, there's people think it's a continuum, but I see it as something that's much more cyclical. And I keep on, I have a quote that's like, remember you, only you can remember you, what you've been through, what you understand, your culture, my West African heritage. It, it hasn't changed sometimes. And, and, and especially through the medium of fashion, I've tried to change that. I've tried to become possibly something else in terms yeah. of my outward appearance yeah but now I'm very comfortable at my age I'm very comfortable saying whatever the position whatever my actual role I'm very comfortable being my authentic self and un unapologetically yeah it's important isn't it I, I think mm. I've had the same realization visually I don't I think you know it's important to kind of but for younger people who are mm. in the position of um do I assimilate or do mm. I dig my heels in and say, yeah. no, I'm sorry, I refuse, this is yeah. who I am. That's really maybe... interesting, yeah. A student said to me the other day, she said, actually, seeing you at the university in your role, what you do, she said, it's not just about representation, I feel safe. And I really reflected on that, about safety. It's possibly something I hadn't thought about in, in that much depth and how people and students feel safe I and I get that I understand yeah. that you walk into a room and you see someone else that looks like you then you feel safer in numbers and I think what it gives people is a kind of beacon to say oh actually there's there's possibilities there's opportunities I do feel safe and that's psychological safety I think yeah. I think often in academia there aren't that many people that can offer that safety and I'm thinking around class race ethnicity yep. gender sexual orientation it's yep. really you know and all the protected characteristics but it's really important to have people that can champion yourself whether that be overtly or covertly yeah you know I'm all about doing it overtly but people just say yeah I understand your lived experience I think is really important I feel safer that you're in post Oh, do you? In yeah. what way? 
you are someone I can speak to without mm. feeling and I need to pretend to be somebody right. else. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to not feel that pressure enormously, mm. but, but my job is to talk about class, talk about not changing mm. and wanting society to change. And mm. when I see a big change in this institution that I've worked in for quite a long time, mm. it makes me safer because I think, right. okay, there's room for different kinds of people who don't fit into that, whatever yeah. the norm used to be seen as. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, and it's that term of fitting in. It's So we're talking about dominant culture now, aren't we? And we're talking yeah. about what that, I mean, even even discussing like fitting in what that means it means there's a there's a them and there's an other and what I I feel is that I'm the I'm the I like the space in between two points so I'm kind of like I'm not either with them or other I'm myself and I feel that that authenticity really allows it so I feel in a way I feel like oh you don't fit like you you're not into what I'm into that's strange but also I feel like, why should you be into what I'm into? And why should I be into like that dominant culture in terms of how you express yourself, how you talk? I love accents. I love difference. And we don't champion difference enough. We're obsessed with normal. So when we came out of the pandemic, everyone's like, oh, we need a return to normal. And I was like, normal was horrific. Normal <laughs> wasn't any better. I don't want to have a pandemic and then go back to, you know, 2019. That was horrific for many people that were marginalised and minoritized. So I actually think, well, why can't we be different? Because there was a moment in the pandemic where I'm out in the sunshine riding my bike. Okay, the background of the pandemic was horrific for a lot of people and really, really sad. But there was a moment of opportunity and hope where I thought, actually, you can be yourself. You can think about other people, regardless of whatever, to keep everyone, you know, safe. And I agree in terms of, you know, fitting in. It rarely crosses my mind. It it rarely crosses my mind because I'm, I'm not sure what there is to fit in with, you know. And I think my I think that's from my my parents instilled that. I kind of knew from an early age I didn't fit in. I, I, I knew at school I was the only black kid. And I would say I used to hate it. I used to I hated my name. I hated my hair my afro I hated my color of my skin and as I grew older I think wow that they're your assets they're your strengths you know yeah gosh that's um that's quite a upsetting thing to hear but then again I did think before this podcast I thought Mm. I wish I could be as brave as Pascal (laughs) (laughs) and when I said about fitting in what I meant was you don't fit in to what used to be seen yes, yes. as the norm which is you know what a traditional academic mm. we what we would think yeah. because that's what we've been told but if you can be brave yeah you can inspire yeah. other people to be brave as well no. so I'm wondering um from a conversation we had about the work that you present to your students why you think that bringing non-mainstream work and experiences to the front is viewed as political I think everything can be political and, and viewed as political or sometimes difficult, but it's interesting in how language frames us as well. When we when we talk about non-mainstream and mainstream and normal and fitting in, it's like, I, I find it really interesting. So I have an array of students that are all very different. 
and I bring my experience and my vision to, to acknowledge their difference not to say actually you're gonna you're going to you're gonna learn in a certain way you're gonna have this this type of brief or assessment in the same way I think it's really important to understand difference and make sure that we can we can celebrate and champion people without it being possibly political and I don't know why things are kind of looked at political so my first year unit this year for example I'll give an example I have a lot of students from overseas Chinese students and UK students and and some diverse students by ethnicity or race and I and usually when I started normal would have been let's have a look at a fashion brand a, a Eurocentric fashion brand Gucci Burberry etc and then I moved it and made it international. But this this year, I just said, actually, you're all going to reference a Black-owned or Black-influenced brand. Yeah. Because I guess that could be seen as political, but I just see that as normal. Because in terms of Black-owned businesses, there are not many. But the influence of Black culture is huge. Yeah. So we don't really reflect that within fashion at all. Yeah. We don't really discuss that within fashion too much really and I think well actually yeah we're going to look at that because you're going to need that and you're all there with your sneakers your Jordans you all listen to Beyonce or Kanye you all reference kind of oversized hoodies and streetwear which I used to design in the streetwear sector Mm -hmm. so let's not see this as political so it's, it's really interesting you see that that we see that as kind of political but for me it's not it's actually just diverse yeah and once we can start understanding the language even though i use the term streetwear is in direct opposition to luxury it's like oh streetwear it's at this level Um, smart or business you know or business even terms like women's wear or men's wear or occasional wear you know it's the language limits us it doesn't really liberate us at all so where i see it i i don't really see it as political I, i i see it as actually really kind of starting to understand the structures in academia, in fashion, in society, like culturally. And I think once students can start to understand that, they can start to kind of excavate, understand new meanings that aren't yeah. really political. We say, actually, it's not political for me just to to wear certain clothes or express myself or if I, you know, identify as a man to wear makeup or nail polish. It's not political. It can be as normal as you want it to be because it's more mainstream. So fashion has kind of the opportunities to really change narratives within the culture. And you can see that fashion is usually at the forefront of change. It can do, but then there are issues around fashion as well, which can be limiting for, you know, the recognition that, black-owned businesses and designers get it's it's yeah. kind of then appropriated in a way that forgets the culture I think so do you think it's because of the narrative that we've been force-fed that anything that is different than that is seen mm. as causing too much trouble uh, you know too many waves because yes. people yeah. are just so comfortable with what they've been told yeah well, yeah doubt. if you look at music for example if you look at rap music and hip-hop music I grew up where they used to ban every album. NWA, Two Live Crew, MTV never used to play any black music. Now, mm-hmm. hip-hop, rap, R&B is the number one music. You can't, 
you can't get away from seeing it. The culture you have, someone like Pharrell Williams, who's just become the, the latest creative director of Louis Vuitton. You have music, that culture, that reflection of that lived experience now becoming the mainstream. But when I was growing up in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, rap music was seen as really, really problematic. And they wanted yeah. to ban it. And they were saying it was corrupting young minds. It was actually what for other communities, for the black community, for other marginalised, and not just black, but socioeconomically, it really spoke to a marginalised group. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine my life without hip-hop. I said that film saved me, but alongside that, I would have to say hip-hop and rap music really, really paid a huge part in how I think about the world, because yeah. I wasn't getting that in academia. I wasn't getting that that other perspective in academia. No, you, know, you were so, getting your subcultural capital from the art form that could you could relate to. To relate to, yeah. Yeah. And and everybody did so much to try and push that away from people. The Beastie Boys, for example, I remember people banning the Beastie Boys because people were, you know, they, they were said to corrupt people and people were kind of stealing badges from Volkswagens back in the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. So, which wasn't me. But... It was really interesting to get that kind of subculture capital. I had to go elsewhere where I saw myself reflected, music, film, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I read a quote from you in an article and, and it really spoke to me. In particular, because Daisy, who I normally present the podcast with, she's um, not available today. And she had told the vice chancellor, actually, when we interviewed Marquis Smith, that in the society she'd been asked why she's wearing her tracksuit and you'd said streetwear for me is where diversity and progressive hope reside which is such an emotional sentence when you think about Daisy she's a local person who lives in Thornhill and she'd come into this institution in um, a politics course and gone to the society and been told that she didn't belong because she was wearing something that everybody she knows wears. I really relate to that actually and I I remember the quote and I think there's that hierarchy and that division that exists in fashion one of the the worst things that happen where we do talk about luxury and we do talk about streetwear and the tracksuit possibly being the kind of beacon of streetwear but for, for me the tracksuit democratized or has democratized what people can do to express themselves. So uh, going back to music, people used to wear tracksuits in the in the late eighties, the nineties, where you could then express yourself through colours, Adidas, Nike tracksuit. So it was the position of hope where you couldn't possibly afford, you know, a Giorgio Armani suit or a Hugo Boss suit. So that casualization, and we see it now. We're seeing top luxury brands sell two or three thousand pound tracksuits so for me for anyone to say hey you shouldn't be wearing a tracksuit is to miss the point it's the fact that now the tracksuit is overtaking the suit i mean there's still a kind of a certain person that wears a suit but i possibly have a thing that i will i don't ever want to wear suits i don't like suits not because there's anything wrong but it's what it actually says around your authentic self so I feel that if somebody wants to wear streetwear someone wants to wear a tracksuit or trainers that is totally fine in fact I went into a board meeting the other day with UEB 
and it was commented on, well, you've always got a different pair of trainers. You really like the trainers. I'm like, yes, because you won't see me in Brogues or a pair of Oxford because that's just not me. Right. And I don't really want to fit <laughs> yeah. I fit in. So when you ever, if you ever see me in a tie and a suit, honestly, that's, it's game over. But I feel very comfortable. You have to be comfortable and reflect your own past, you know, racially, ethically, for your gender, for your social economic. And the tracksuit, I feel... It's such a phenomenal garment because it really expresses the individual. I have a group of garments that I love. The T-shirt, I think it's the greatest invention within fashion. It just works, stretch material. There are no trims. You can express yourself emotionally and politically through printed T-shirts. And, that, and you know, um, you'll see Gen Z millennials look for their own expressive emotions through the T-shirt very very powerful and i just like the way that it just works in terms of the ergonomics and and just over your head and arm i just think it's brilliant but also the hooded the hooded garment as well there's so much work being done david simons who's a, is a who's an artist has done some really good work where that the hoodie is politicized so if you talk about people in america black kids in america that have been killed unfortunately at the hands of the police a lot of that is because they look suspicious. Trevor yeah. Martin, who was 17, was killed because he looked suspicious because he had a hoodie on. But we just yeah. carrying skittles walking home. So yeah. I feel that these these garments, these artifacts are tremendously powerful and talk of the culture. Yeah. And they also really speak of, you know, where we talk about being reflected. If you wear sneakers and usually one of the best selling sneakers is the Air Jordan, which I got on today, actually reflects one of the greatest athletes ever who happens to be black so yeah. you you look at that culture and it reflects not just through race but also the kind of social that again the cultural capital comes yeah. through the garments that you wear and i think i was that's just so about important. to say yeah it's so interesting because i was thinking about what you said about um young black people in america and this country obviously mm. and the um really a criminal juxtaposition they have with the police and their mm. social relationship with the police it's massive massive problem and has been for a long time and then I kind of thought to myself there are kind of other kinds of traditional dress that aren't seen in that way do you think mm. it's because it's street do you think it's related class and the street and being seen as less than less so maybe now that, but definitely when, within wider society, yes. If you're wearing uh -huh. trainers and a tracksuit and a hood, which is all I wear, by the way, whether yeah. I'm in a board meeting or hanging around anywhere, is it, there is a kind of a snobbery, a hierarchy to streetwear. And even the term, and there's been Kirby Jean Raymond, who's a, who's a, a designer for Pia Moss, talks about the snobbery of just calling it streetwear. Yeah. And how streetwear is really a kind of pseudonym for black directed fashion. And not just black. I don't want to just make it black, but different social, social economic classes sure. as well. Where yeah. you just think, well, actually, it's streetwear. But if you if you look at the brands like Zara, H&M, even Primark, I mean, Primark might be value, but definitely Zara and H&M, they're high street. 
they're not streetwear, they're high street, which then that term would suggest that they sit above streetwear. Yeah. Well, really not even in terms of price or products or style. It, they don't. Yeah. So what you then see is luxury, but luxury somehow can then borrow from streetwear and you can have a pair of sneakers from Louis Vuitton that cost you £1,500. So it, it doesn't seem like there's a balance. I think what is taken from streetwear is not always then acknowledged. Yeah, I think is not good. I think it's interesting what you said earlier about still feeling like the 10 year old that you were. Mm. I can relate to that 100 percent. And obviously my kids wear street wear and uh, and they said, oh, what did you used to wear when you were my age? Mm. And I said, "Um, you know, it was the 80s and we used to kind Mm. of wear Tashini and um, Kappa and things like that. And they said, what did you? used to do I said we just like wander around the street and uh, you know finding things to do just chatted and they said were you a road man (laughs) and I said (laughs) I said I still am (laughs) (laughs) I just feel exactly the same it's so funny my children (laughs) wear my clothes my daughters will have my tracksuits on or my old hoodies on or their burrow things and we share things it's really nice I've also I'm like streetwear also is in a way genderless as well so my daughters or my son can wear the same kind of clothes the same sort of tracksuits yeah really refreshing so there isn't that that kind of female body ideal around streetwear where there is around luxury fashion in other sectors as well so i found that again that has that is that's much more inclusive regardless of your sexuality or your gender or your class you can wear streetwear because it's for you and i think that's really really um powerful so what role do you think fashion plays in moving ideas about class and race to a point of being cherished and admired? I think fashion can be really powerful. Does it happen? Possibly not, because the overwhelming narrative of fashion is around consumption and ownership. I think it it supersedes that notion of how beautiful fashion can be, how inclusive fashion can be. And and really, I, I when I used to design, I used to design from a position of hope, I used to design from a position of longevity. I like clothes that last and not just physically last, but last in the mind. I like and I don't wear denim hardly ever, but I like the fact that 501s are still around hundreds of years later. I like the fact that Michael Jordan came into the NBA League in 1984 and they're still relevant now. I think what we have is a an influx of cheap, fast fashion, which is exploitative. And then doesn't really speak of, you know, of the core values of what fashion can have. So, you know, the the late great Vivian Westwood is, is like, you know, buy less, but buy more expensive. So you can have things that but last, but actually have emotional content within garments. It does happen. It can happen. But they're usually more expensive, more scarce. But where you go and you see fashion at the high street level, the mid-market level, it's usually around volume and not really around intimacy and and hope. And and then that sometimes gets missed within fashion as well because it is a business. And uh, I feel fashion has the power to really change people mm-hmm. because you can express yourself through just colour, 
fabrication form i think it's a really important tool but often it gets missed of i want the latest this i want the latest that look how good i look so fashion is not about how you look for me it's about how you feel yeah absolutely so why do you think that some traits become desirable by a subcultural capital but then don't convert more effectively into power and increase mobility in some settings so, you know, for example, streetwear accents, I mean, you've cracked it and we're all mm. so happy that your uh, UEB meetings in your Air Jordans. But, you know, why are we even talking about that? You know, mm. why is that even a thing and accents and hobbies and interests? You know, there was a some research done by the civil service that some working class civil servants talking about going on holiday to Mallorca, which I think is really you know, yeah. a great holiday. Uh, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> but people kind of laughing and things like that. I think there's fear. There's yeah. fear attached. And if I'm being really honest, yeah, there was fear. I did modify and codify myself. There was fear of being, of not fitting in. And then you reflect and you think, that, like, why is that? Where does that come from? And that's probably directed on you, not come from you. So I feel that actually without fear and think, what's the most comfortable shoe? Yeah, it is my Air Jordan. What's the most comfortable garment? Yeah, it is a hoodie. Not in a shirt and tie, sat down for a three-hour meeting talking about some really important things I really want to be comfortable so then that expresses me and I think it kind of it comes out in the way that I talk and my energy will come out and yeah I can dress how I want so I I, I do sometimes think oh do I need to kind of look this certain way you know there's flashes of do you or do yeah I do I still do I still do you have that kind of not imposter syndrome but you do check yourself and then I'm like no for one I don't own smart you know, trousers or shirts I, or ties. I just find them very uncomfortable and not me. But I do feel these traits of, of how how you speak, accent, be yourself. Like just, Absolutely. I would I would love to send that message to everyone. Be yourself. Because a lot of people will say, don't be yourself. You can't be yourself. And if you ask, so people said to me when I, when I was at college, I said, oh, you're going to have to cut your hair because I have my hair in twists and I've had it longer and you're going to have to cut your hair to get a good job. In fact, my mum still says that, you know, when are you going to cut your hair? And I'm like, I'm well, nearly 48. She's seen you now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm nearly 48. And I, regardless, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay without wearing suits. And, and I actually straightened my hair when I was at college. I like relaxed. Oh it was gosh. a thing then. So it was, um, I actually straightened my hair, which is a procedure that a lot of, men black men at that time would straighten their hair relax their hair with chemicals and it was one of the worst things i did because i was playing Sounds basketball like hard work. it's hard work and it's yeah. stung when you'd get like the rain it would all drip around your face terrible i've got pictures that i've got into the you know into the back of the wardrobe but yeah there was many things that i still think do i need to um, modify my my appearance or the way that i act and i feel it's really sad when people can't express themselves in an yeah. authentic way. It's really sad and speaks of a kind of oppressive culture that we live in, that you feel that you might have to tone down your accent or there's a lot of things when I consult around EDI things and, and class and accent come up. There's also tone. People think that, that there's a kind yeah. of discrimination against people that are more animated or louder. Yeah. They're like, oh, they're very animated or they're too loud you know, from my culture 
my mum, I grew up and I was like, you know, my mum's loud and the family is loud and that's just your culture. So different cultures are more expressive, maybe with their hands or their tone. And it's, you don't want people just to kind of really tone themselves down because it doesn't, again, going back to that term, fit in. Fit in yeah. with what? You know. I think it's so important for someone in your position to speak to our listeners and hear that it's a situation that's been put on to them yeah. rather than an internal deficit, which obviously is is not the, and yeah. the not how it is. And no. I like the idea that if you, you like you said, you ask yourself, should I change myself in some way in this situation? The answer is always no. No, yeah. yeah. There's power in saying no. There's power in the question, and there's always power in saying no. And I, I got that from my I'm a little four-year-old boy, and I say to him, "All right, you need to eat your greens. You need to go to bed." And he would say, "No." And I'm like, "What?" And he would say, "I'm not tired, or I don't want to eat my greens." And he'd say, "No." So I, it made me reflect and think. Actually, why can't you just say no? It's so it's not even a problem for him. He's not even being naughty. He's like, "I'm not tired." So who are you to force? A bedtime on me which means that I'm not tired I mean I do make sure he gets to bed in good time and I do make sure he eats a healthy balanced diet but we're kind of told that we have to accept things as they are yeah and if we accept things as they are in this current political environmental climate nothing will change so we have to be I feel confident in saying no, I'm not accepting this situation, whether it be around sustainability, environmental issues. I'm not accepting what we are told is normal. I actually want to make sure that the world's a better place. And it can only be a better place if you're authentic, authentic yeah. to yourself, to your nationality, your gender, etc., your sexuality, whatever it is, is to be yourself, not to choose to be something different, to fit in or to be normal. Yeah. Because I think that's a really dangerous position to occupy. I think that in careers, it talks about a lot less and less, but the idea of polish, mm. as if, you know, we're rough as mm. human beings and we need to be polished up, as you say, to fit into some ridiculous normal. Rough is great. Rough <laughs> is great. But we've already told rough. So language will tell us that, that, you know, there's this binary polemic of rough, bad, polished, smooth, great. That's why people, I guess, shave their legs and shave under their arms and shave their skin. You'll see adverts that have smooth skin, unwrinkled skin, unblemished skin, beauty ideals. What's wrong with rough? Yeah. What's wrong with that as well? I think it's natural, but we're told a certain thing that puts us on a bar, usually because it serves some sort of economic purpose. Absolutely, or, or the or whoever is benefiting from it. Mm. So, can subcultural capital be a good tool for understanding young people and entice a wider participation in in this university? Absolutely, I think subcultural capital is is not just a good tool; it's a it's a necessary tool, and it should be integral to understand. The best things that I remember from my universities is not actually the 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 lessons or the course and they were good to a to a degree but it was the people it was the activities it was the things that sat outside like I said I went to Manchester it's going it's going out it's it's 
understanding people and how you talk to them. So I would, we had in the Northwest in Manchester, people from Liverpool, Ireland, Newcastle, people from places I've never been to. Meeting people with other interests, diverse interests, allows you to understand through the lens of other. And I think that's so important. What we have in academia and what I'm hoping to change is that kind of rigidness and this is the pillar of academia. I stand in front of you, tell you things, you learn them, you do them. I want people to explore not only their inner self, but also the other self, the person, the people you come across, the cities that you travel to. So I, until recently, until this new position, was always a big fan, like I travelled postgraduate, but I also would do trips for students, taking them to New York, Los Angeles, Florence, Paris, all across the world, because I think that understanding of other cultures is so important. And and it really kind of synchronizes with how we learn as well. Yeah. Because there's not one universal, singular way of learning and understanding the world. There's many different many different ways. Yeah, it can rewire our brain, can't it? Yeah. And if enough people get the brains rewired, it'll become a, a collective agreement that yeah. The status quo is just a bit daft. No, yeah, it is, yeah, a bit daft. <laughs> and, and it seems so obvious, but yeah. it's also been so difficult to validate that it is a bit daft. And because there is a kind of, not a ruling class maybe, but this, it's like an oil tanker trying to turn an oil tanker. And you're like, it's just so slow. But really, if you, I feel if you think and act, and speak in a different way you can be like a speedboat much more agile to change i would say this that the the younger generation the students millennials gen z gen alpha they are better equipped to understand changes that are needed and you can see them in the how vociferous they are in certain political social justice issues and that's really great to see what we really have to work on is the other kind of the other sections of society that might need more work but there is hope there's always hope which is kind of what I always tell myself before I go to bed there's always hope and just the power of getting up the next day means that you have you know a sea of hope to do some good really. Pascal on that note thank you so much for your time today you've been an inspiration and let's let's look forward to all the better days. Hope so. Thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed it talking through. So thank you for inviting me on. The Class Ceiling Podcast. Smashing the Class Ceiling.